0: anthropologist, scholar-activist, and speaker at the Why the World Needs Anthropology mobilizing the planet that is happening between 10 and 12th of September 2021. We are happy to have Alex with us, speaking to his background and current work at the intersection of scholarship and political engagement. Alex shares how he came into his path, as well as the unfolding of his conflicted relationship with academia, researching and teaching in the space of political imagination. What can research do with and for social movements? How can we use research as a tool to make the struggles for social justice stronger and more ambitious? Alex gives us a small glimpse into Radical Imagination, a project where he, together with other scholars, attempts to find answers to these questions. Lastly, as a speaker of why the world is anthropology mobilizing the planet, he shares how he will be contributing to the theme, as well as his advice and thoughts to those considering to attend. Listen to the episode to hear more about it. We hope you enjoy it. Hi, friends, we are here today for with Alex Kishnabish, um, scholar, activist and one of the speakers at Why the World Is Anthropology. Hi, Alex. Hi. Alex, I'm really curious to, uh, to dive together with our listeners also into, um, into your background and interests. So I'm just going to um, ask you to share with me um, a little bit about your past so far and your interest in joining in the conference.
1: Sure. Um, well, thanks again. Really happy to be here. Thank you for the invitation. Um, so, I'm an anthropologist by training. Um, I uh, currently work as a professor at Mount St. Vincent University, which is a small university on Canada's East Coast, um, and have been doing that for a little bit more than a decade. Um, My work focuses very broadly on questions of social change, social justice. Uh, I look a lot and work a lot with uh, movements, with social movements. And currently, um, my work focuses on questions surrounding the rise or the resurgence of the radical far right, um, particularly new fascist formations and what that says about our current moment and how we uh, should respond to things like that, if we care about living in uh, liberated, peaceful, and democratic societies. Yeah. So. And, and yeah.
0: A, a small question: What what drew you to this field of of of, um, of work and study? Where does it can you can you trace sure. it back to your? Um,
1: yeah, definitely. Um. So I, you know, grew up sort of a very typical middle class person living in Toronto, uh, Canada. Uh, that's where I'm from. My parents are both immigrants to the country, uh, but I, you know, both me and my sister had the benefit of growing up in, uh, you know, a fairly stable, uh, if not overly wealthy, environment, and sort of considered ourselves typical Canadians, whatever that meant. I think. Uh, and and for me, I think my my moment of political awakening, if if you want to call it that, probably began in high school sometime mm-hmm. and mainly occurred through music and other like cultural media. I was accessing and beginning to think about uh, beginning to come to an understanding that the world was probably a lot less fair and equitable than uh, my own life might have reflected, but also seeing you know, the struggles in my parents' lives and my grandparents' lives. Um, my mother is originally from Latvia. My father uh, came from Burma uh, to Canada. They both came in various ways as uh, well, I mean, I guess you could call my dad an economic migrant. Um, my mom came essentially as a refugee to Canada uh, in the aftermath of World War II. So their their life stories and the things they faced, I mean, my father particularly, because he's very, very dark skinned, um, uh, struggled with racism in Canada a lot. And both my sister and I, I think growing up as sort of ambiguously racialized people in the Canadian context, but with a fairly solid middle class background, you know, Mm -hmm. a lot of people, I think, find themselves in a weird place in an avowedly multicultural society like Canada where you know we were told a long time ago that racial discrimination while it continued to happen for example wasn't really a thing anymore Um, but there were many experiences in my own life that that suggested otherwise and so it wasn't really until um well I guess there were two moments that I'd say were pivotal and for me in 1994 um as the, as the calendar turned over, uh, this movement in the far southeast of Mexico uh, that we would ultimately come to know as the Zapatista movement rose up in arms uh, and and seized several towns and cities in the far southeast of Mexico. And as, a, as somebody, as a young person coming to some sort of political awareness in Canada, but also um, like many people at the time, feeling like it was a dark time internationally if you were not a big booster for capitalist globalization, the time was pretty dark. There weren't a lot of points of inspiration coming from uh, parts across the global north. And so when the Zapatistas exploded onto the scene, I mean, I was only marginally aware of them, I think, when the uprising began. But in the months and years that would follow that, they became a huge part of my own political education. And uh, and in part because I was a big fan of the band Rage Against the Machine, who uh, devoted a lot of their songs and lyrics to talking about the Zapatista struggle. Um, So as a middle class, ambiguously racialized kid going off to university. Um, I didn't come into university as a particularly politi- politicized person but certainly the four years I spent doing my undergraduate studies exposed me to people uh, issues on campus and professors uh, uh, I guess amongst whom I would count uh, my eventual PhD supervisor uh, Petra Rethman who were just incredible influences on my thinking and really I had one of those like stereotypical experiences um, that you hear talked about uh, as a young person coming through university where where it really was a like it was the doors of uh, perception being thrown wide open for me in some ways and having the opportunity to have really interesting and challenging conversations in a university environment around a variety of social justice issues uh, that really radicalized me frankly and by the time uh, I got around to completing my undergrad Uh, I decided that uh, doing further study in anthropology was something I was interested in. Uh, I loved English too. I was also an English major, but the reason that I ended up doing anthropology was because I felt it had uh, something that was going to allow me to actually engage with people in the world and hopefully to interact and to make a difference in some of those social realities and not just kind of study texts and, Mm and media at a distance from those sorts of things. So I ended up doing my master's. Again, my uh, supervisor was Petra Rethman at McMaster University. And I did it on the intersection between the independent labor movement and the Zapatista movement in Mexico. I did field work in Mexico City and talked to independent trade unionists there about this connection that in Canada was super rare this um, these coming together of an indigenous based movement with a radical trade union movement. So you know, these two uh, incredibly powerful revolutionary struggles, and in Canada, we just didn't see that we still continue not to see that really the bringing together of sort of a more traditionally class based activism, and a more indigenous grounded struggle. Um, and that was an incredible and eye-opening experience. And living in Mexico City for six weeks uh, was an incredible thing to do. Um, and then when it came time to do my PhD, I decided that uh, I wanted to continue, but I wanted to do something different because I felt that, um, in you know, I, I didn't want to be another gringo in Mexico <laughs> Uh, studying the Zapatistas (laughs) when there were lots of Mexican anthropologists who were doing a much Mm. better job of it anyway. Um, So I really gave some careful thought to what brought me to my passion and interest in the Zapatistas. And it really was this question of political imagination and the resonance of political struggle across geographic space and across time. So where do we get our imaginations of political possibility from? How do we know what's possible and and not? Where do we get our inspiration from? Um, How do those struggles proliferate and cross-pollinate across time and distance? And so what I ended up doing for my PhD and what was my, uh, my sort of focus of research for a long time after I was done too, was this question of how political imaginations grow, emerge, grow and travel. And uh, and so for my dissertation, I ended up working with activists in Canada and the United States, um, really mapping and looking to understand how and why the Zapatista struggle had been important to them, but not just kind of important as something to express solidarity with, but how it had changed their own approach to struggles grounded in the place where they lived and worked. Um, And so I interviewed activists all across Canada and the States, and it was really an incredible experience of getting to know these diverse struggles and also coming to be really convinced that the thing that I had felt, being so inspired by the Zapatistas and and using their frame of struggle to inform my own, was something that was going on um, really quite broadly. And obviously, the alter globalization movement itself paid homage to that in so many ways. And that was the work that I did for years and years. I mean, I moved kind of on from looking at the Zapatista struggle uh, specifically, but uh, continued to do work in this area of the radical imagination and radical social movements. And uh, one of the things, I guess, that remains an overriding hallmark of my work is this conviction that, that social research can be a grassroots process of inquiry into our world, that can really, that, that doesn't need to happen inside the university. Um, in fact, uh, often shouldn't happen inside the university, but is of tremendous value to people looking to challenge and change their worlds. And so what, what can research do with and for social movements? How can we use research as a tool to uh, make our struggles for social justice stronger and more um, more ambitious, how can we use it to address some of the you know the kind of um, really difficult obstacles and cleavages within movements and between them? So that's the work that I've been doing for years now, and I I, I co uh, directed a project called the Radical Imagination Project. Uh, that was based in the city where I live and work uh, between 20, 2010 and 2017, um, which was a very interesting project, had some successes and many failures, and, um, and we learned a lot from that. And then subsequent to that, I have now turned my attention uh, away from movements that I love and work with and express solidarity with. Uh, and now towards movements of the far right, because uh, well, I don't think that requires too much explanation, I'm sure for many of your listeners, because they are on the march around the world because we live in a very dark time right now, and the radical right has really seized that moment of opportunity. and um, and so my conviction now is that as a researcher, I can I can um, shed important light. Uh, on the dynamics of of far right and fascist descendants, and hopefully um, provide some tools to communities who are looking to combat that ascendance and to build more just, more democratic, more dignified ways of living in common,
0: yeah wow wonderful um you know b- before moving into the part where i ask you about the theme and mobilization and how will you speak to it i want to ask you a question that it sits in my head since since you've been sharing your uh, your two impulses that that drove mm. your kind of formation because i find it i find it so powerful like you say uh, that that you uh, um showed such a for me at least such a uh, space of inner self-reflection when you made a decision on where do you want to take your path of personal development. So in that kind of space of political reimagination, probably the interest towards music and towards art, like there's a probably there were roots or kernels there that that kind of guided you on your way of what exactly is your interest. Mm-hmm. And and how does it connect deeply to your space of value? Um, I, I remember when I I was kind of like struggling in figuring out do I want to do a PhD and if if what prevents me from saying yes it was like that, you know that that ability to connect to an inner sense of um, fountain of values that says yes this is my path. Looking back seven years ago when I finished um, my master track. Uh, and I'm still kind of waiting for the right impulse to launch me into the PhD. But I I connect a lot to your story in the space of kind of political reimagining, and and the scholars that inspire me, like I'm very inspired by Ursula Le Guin and what she does with the space of fiction. Yeah,
1: definitely. Um,
0: to imagine new political narratives of society, or Davis Graber work with anarchism mm-hmm. and activism. Yeah. So um, so this very wide landed introduction was it was it was it explicit this kind of like inner search for like what's my compass where where does it take me and and what helped you in that um, yeah what what helped mm. you point the compass in the right direction in that moment um
1: yeah that's uh, that's a great question um, so I guess I you know I really come at this from a few different directions I guess I would say that you know part of that is certainly um, Attributable just to you know just to the space that I grew up in. Um, I mean, I had the great privilege of being raised, particularly by a very strong and very hardworking mother. And um, while she is the farthest, she would say she is the farthest thing from a radical. Um, I think her uh, her lessons that she taught to me and my sister about. Um, you know, how to carry yourself ethically and in a dignified fashion through the world have always resonated with me. And, um, and I wanted to, I wanted to be faithful to that sort of at the most basic level, I guess. So that's sort of one component of it, my, and then seeing the things that my parents struggled with, whether it was, um, you know, precarity and, and brushes with poverty, but also dynamics of violence and racism and all this sort of stuff sort of provided that bedrock. Um, As I grew up, I I had the great privilege of uh, just having a really great group of friends around me who exposed me to different like pop culture and art and music that I think was really formative. Um, Like I've already said, you know, uh, Rage Against the Machine was a, a huge influence. And I think Rage is so interesting because so many people, Associated with this kind of like jock rock phenomenon, but the band itself couldn't be further from that. And I, I really continue to be inspired by that. I think I, I'm a, I've am always been a big fan of political theory, but I, I really mm. do find some of the rarefied spaces of um, kind of like intellectual with a capital I thought mm. uh, very alienating and very uh, absurd, like, and I and I and to be honest with you, I find a university this way to this day. Much of what goes on in university spaces, I think, is um, is uh, like it's a it's sort of a class privileged dalliance with things that only the bourgeoisie could find interesting.
0: So <laughs> what why, all, what keeps you there, uh, Alex?
1: Well, it's a great question. I mean, I I've always had a very conflicted relationship. Like, I mean, I'm one of these people who has always been kind of good at school, I guess. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and so I, I fit into that, you know, I fit into that industrial education model. I'm, you know, like I can, I can do that. And I was successful at that. Uh, so when I went to university, you know, the things I succeeded in were, were particularly challenging to me, but I thought they were all pathways to learning about things that I didn't already know about. So mm-hmm. using my undergraduate, uh, time as a way to explore radical politics and the Zapatista struggle and these things was tremendously interesting and fruitful to me. And that's where I saw the value in it, as well as doing all kinds of things outside of that on campus and in the community eventually. And when it came time, when my four years of undergrad wrapped up, it was that actually not until the very end of my undergraduate studies that I even really thought about doing graduate school. It wasn't something, I didn't come from a family, like, I mean, my, my mother had been to university, my, my father had taken some university courses, but never gotten a, a degree. So I didn't come from a family of, you know, like so many, I mean, and this isn't to malign the professoriate too much, although I do some of that. Um, so many professors come from families of professors, you know, Uh, it's, it's not only a guild structure, but there is that element of socialization into it. And I didn't come from that background. Uh, So for me, the university was an exciting place to be, because it was unlike the schooling I'd done before, but it wasn't the place that I necessarily wanted to spend my life or even earn my wage under capitalism. And so I did my master's because I thought it was an opportunity to continue to grow those skills because I really enjoyed the intellectual conversations I was having with peers and with teachers uh, because I was excited about the idea of learning skills that I thought could be very applied in the real world and could be used to, um, to grow a more a more radically socially just society. Um, and, and the master's was great for that. I love doing my master's. And um, when it, when I was done that, again, I really struggled about whether or not I wanted to do my Ph.D. I wasn't convinced I wanted to be a career academic, to be honest. Mm-hmm. And, um, and it was right up to the 11th hour. And I was I applied to a few places. I was accepted. Uh, you know, it was and again, I was kind of torn about it and uh, and decided that I wanted to, to wanted to pursue it in large part because I had this and I continue to have this wonderful relationship with my supervisor, my mentor. Uh, she was such an incredible political and social scientific uh, inspiration to me. And Because I continued to think there was more I had to say and learn about activism, scholarship, and, and the relationship that it might have to these grounded processes of inquiry into our world. Um, but again, even when I was doing my PhD, I was not convinced I wanted to be a professor. That's not why I did it. I was one of those people who we joke about now, but I think it's true, where grad school for me was like a, an activist ghetto. It was a place to be <laughs> where we could be, we could be outside of the normal circuits mm. of capitalist enclosure that tie you into all these things that discipline you in your sort of like young adult phase of life. So grad school is like this liminal space where you can exist and do kooky things and still m- make money and still survive and be free of so much of that. And so I, I, I made use of that. You know, I was yeah. very involved as an activist in different things. And so when I by the time I was done, um, I mean, I gave myself, I think, a very clear window uh, to see if an academic gig was going to work out or not. And I also pursued other opportunities um, but it was also quickly told that the PhD is a mistake for people <laughs> who are looking to do other kinds of work. And that was shocking to me because I, I thought I could take my uh, my skills, my research skills and go to work, for example, for social justice think tanks. Uh, one of the biggest in Canada is the Canadian Centre for Policy Alternatives. And mm-hmm. I had a conversation with one of their directors and he told me point blank that they would never hire somebody with a PhD. because. They considered a, a professionalized academic degree, and that you know, basically, you've been trained to expect the timelines and uh, creature yeah, yeah. comforts of professoriate, right? And and that my mind was blown. I was like, "Have I done something that now is going to eliminate other possibilities?" So this is stuff I tell students these days. I'm like, "Don't don't mistake the value of the master's. The master's is a wonderful degree, but only do a PhD if you're serious about. If you, you either don't care and you just really want to do it." Yeah serious about wanting to pursue the academic uh the academic gig so yeah, be
0: sharp and be critical right like yeah, it's I, and I I always, always, yeah sorry go ahead I I think I think like living in this conflicted states gives gives actually quite clear paths forward you know mm-hmm. because um, in order to solve the conflicted state uh, you have to be really clear what you want so I find that really um really nice and it makes me reflect on my challenges because I I don't I very shortly why I asked the question because now it dawned on me, I grew up in, in communism where school was a space of Eastern Europe, where mm. school was a space of direct indoctrination when you are really not allowed to think <laughs> free what you want, but but mm. just memo- m- um, uh, memorize what is told that you should be thinking about the world. So the home space environment for me became the space of um, a freedom of thought. Mm-hmm. So I've, I never made this kind of association until I started studying mm. in the Netherlands um, uh, as the, as the uh, knowledge base being associated with these institutions. So I've, I have had a lot of unlearning to do. Mm. Um, but I... Um, I would love to go, um, I think you've, you've touched on some things that, that that makes me think on why you joined the conference, but i just love to also ask the question directly, w- why speak at Why With the World Needs Anthropologist and why at this edition, why mobilizing the planet?
1: Um, so last year I had the very great privilege of participating in uh, this conference, but on, in its online iteration um because of the pan because of the the stage we were at in the pandemic and when the invitation came in from the organizers actually had i hadn't been to the conference at any time before um but i just i loved the approach i loved the idea that it was an event that was not primarily aimed only at academics and aimed at i, I really have actually i'll be honest i have a very great hatred for academic <laughs> only conferences. And I find them um, incredibly self-serving and narcissistic and dedicated to the production of mostly useless academic capital. Um, So, you know, papers that nobody wants to hear um, endless pontificating and self-aggrandisement these sorts of things and the um, the why the world needs anthropologist conference seemed totally opposed to that and my experience uh, participating online last year was was great it was a very lively discussion I found the uh, the conversations that were being had really really grounded and useful and I also I continue to believe that um, you know I I don't always call it social science research, I guess. I like to call it, you know, research is a process of grounded and rigorous inquiry. And people without any academic training do it all the time without realizing they're engaging in it. But Mm -hmm. when we make the process intentional, and and rigorous and critical, um, and we acknowledge we're doing it together, then we're actually engaging in powerful forms of investigation into our world that make our problems clearer, that make the routes to solving them uh, perhaps mm-hmm. more apparent. And we mobilize that, that, that thing that actually defines us as a species, our capacity to collaborate, to problem solve, and to communicate. And I think that that's something that um, ironically, we live in a time of all this, you know, digital media, all this infrastructure and communication, uh, but most of that is just incredibly wasted, <laughs> and uh, and has been colonized by all kinds of different interests instead of being put to work, in in building the kinds of societies that we could have right now, that um, that could just be like so much more supportive and satisfying for human life, and I think um, I think this conference and those like it. Get us much further along that path. I think it's exciting to talk to people about why uh, why research and these kinds of processes matter outside of the university. And yeah, I just I love the theme. I love the idea of you know um, I still like I'm I'm still a dyed in the wool um, uh, activist, I guess at my at my roots. And I see this kind of as an activist-inspired conference in the sense that. Um, the the urge is to do something with our with our research rather than simply to um, to think all the time. It's the you know, the implication is that you're going to act with it. Uh, yeah, so, yeah. Yeah. so those are, I think, are the things that drew me to it.
0: And, and what are you going to be speaking to, uh, Alex? What what uh, can you share something about the, the content of your uh, contribution?
1: Um, so I'm still I'm still putting the sort of the middle touches mm-hmm. on that. So I don't want to say too much. I'll say that uh, um, I'm most interested right now in talking about um, this capacity to use research to investigate and explore the far right and um, and and what we can what we can learn from that not only about the far right. Not only about resurgent fascism, but also like what that means for how we can think about social research going forward, sort of in a mm-hmm. broader context. You know, what is the value of this stuff to society at this, you know, in the 21st century? Um, and so, yeah. the talk that I'm that I'm sort of working off of is a talk that very much focuses on um, on the way the far the radical right has used moments of political opportunity to pry open spaces of um, recruitment and proliferation for themselves, how they've mobilized particularly online resources to do that and and what that says about the failure of left politics and social justice initiatives to meet the challenge. Um, And uh, yeah, so that's kind of broadly what I'll be talking about.
0: Nice. Well, that's good that you're not sharing too much. That keeps our our curiosity going. Um, I have a a short question that it, my curiosity got already sparked right now. Um, in one of one of the things that I always get fascinated about when I talk about scholars that are also activists is how do you conceptualize um the limits of your effect? Like mm. like how far do you go in the space of uh, intervention? Like do you, do you go like when do you stop being a researcher and you become a designer and 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 how do you look at that kind of distinction and and crossover is is do you see it also in that way when you define effect as an activist
1: yeah that's that's a great question i mean i guess um so my um the, the person that i worked with for a long time running the radical imagination project is an activist and scholar by the name of max haven and max and i um you know, really came to the conviction that one of the things that uh, the research process that we were bringing uniquely when we decided to run this research project called the Radical Imagination Project that aimed to bring all these different activists together, basically to have all kinds of weird and expansive conversations that we would facilitate, but never, never dominate. So it was kind of this distance that the the our emplacement as university-based researchers gave us this distance from the movements themselves that actually made us useful. So we could, for example, curate discussions on sexual violence in movement spaces, for example, that would bring together a diversity of activists from different uh, particular organizations and struggles who never would share a roof if one or other of their movements was holding that discussion because they had, you know, uh, they had gulfs between them or bad blood or whatever. But if we would do it and curate it, facilitate it, set it up, then it was kind of a more neutral space that those activists could come together and were willing to have those tougher conversations with. So we came to understand that this kind of unjust, unearned, but nevertheless present kind of autonomy that the university has and university-based researchers often have from the thing that they are engaged in, whether that's scholarship or or sorry, whether that's activism or, or anything else, can actually become become kind of a useful tool in facilitating difficult discussions about topics that um, people otherwise can't have. So from my perspective, I don't see my, my politics ever as separate from the work that I do, but I recognize that I'm not always seen as belonging to the struggles that I participate with in the same way that people uh, who are like key activists and organizers are in that space. I see my contribution as humble and usually more minor as what, as what they're doing. So for example, like with a lot of the stuff that came out of the Radical Imagination Project, We were able to curate movement histories and organizational histories that otherwise wouldn't have had a home in our context. We're keeping some of the record of that struggle alive. We were able to uh, pay speakers who came from different movements, you know, for their ideas and insights. That was like a material um, way of transferring resources that are unjustly hoarded by universities often back to the community. There was also an element of skill sharing where we would train people in community to be researchers, to be grassroots researchers. So, you know, what are like, how do you do an interview? How do you, how do you like code an interview transcript? How do you make sense of this data? And so it was an active attempt to transfer some of those skills without ever elevating the university. We, We were not trying to recruit grad students. We were just like, how can we actually engage in a process of democratic skill transfer and resource transfer back to communities rather than doing what academics have done for since time immemorial, basically, which is to drop in on movements, take a snapshot of them, go and write your book, and then, you know, never be seen again. So I would say that um, whenever I'm asked to do something, especially if I'm asked to take a public position or support something in my academic role, I have no problem doing that. But on the other hand, I think it's very clear for me what the limits are. Sometimes we're simply not welcome in certain kinds of movement spaces or we're not, and not because I can't also wear that hat and be present, but um, navigating the sort of the ethical limits to where I am or what hat I'm wearing at any given time is much more contextual, I think, for me than it is kind of like definitive or essential across all those different contexts. But it's a really rich question, I think, and people really do approach this very differently. I have a lot of respect for the different ways. That uh, people who are committed ultimately to social justice and to learning about our world navigate that and navigate that in complex ways.
0: I find I find that beautiful. B- beautiful, this kind of interpretation, how I see it, of, of effect in in simply the act of holding space and being the container for for the neutrality, maybe that enables those groups to to um, debate. I've yeah. I've 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 been um, recently put my been put myself in in the same position in my day-to-day job and I've been exploring with tools like deep democracy for example I'm not sure if you're aware with uh, the toolings of deep democracy but I I found it um, an interesting space to kind of sit with Um, but Alex before we move into my question regarding the conference I wanted to ask ask you one more Um, and it might be a bit weird so sorry for that but I'm very curious you you spoke Briefly, um, at the beginning, about the the power of art and imagination for you, and mm-hmm. and and the kind of like um, finding uh, finding a way of expression through art, or being inspired by the way art reaches those uh, ways of conceptualization in the world. I'm curious if if you um, yourself have art or another outlet uh, as a form to to express your own personal imaginings, your own personal politics, independent of your work as a scholar.
1: Um, yeah, I mean, the simple answer to that is no. Um, I, I feel like this is one of the kind of Faustian bargains you make as (laughs) your academic. Um, I used to, I used to love to write creatively. Um, Mm. and I have a very great and abiding love for, uh, all kinds of speculative fiction from horror to fantasy to science fiction. I love it. And I, I, Um, and I find it deeply satisfying to to read and I used to write it, but, um, now that my job involves so much of like analytical writing, academic writing, I really find I've been trained out of those, uh, forms of expression, unfortunately, and don't have time, uh, to engage in them as much as I would like. I mean, I also have kids and you know, that, that changes the whole dynamic about what you have time to do. But, um, yeah, uh, I think. I think that expression is so powerful and mm-hmm. and I think it's so, it really is, it's like some of the people I respect most and whose work uh, inspires my own are not academics at all. But our uh, are, are people who work in creative fields mm-hmm. uh, the uh, yeah the lead singer of my favorite band uh, talks regularly about uh, how he doesn't see himself as as a musician exactly, but that he's like what the work that they do is to kind of transmit these ideas using the vernacular of music and pop culture and all this. Uh, to make those ideas, to spread those ideas abundantly amongst people who are consuming them without real, you know, because those people mm. aren't likely to take up, pick up a heavy political text or to read some, you know, impenetrable academic article about a movement, but will listen to a punk song about you know, uh, whatever, about the the settler Canadian, settler colonial Canadian state and its relationship to indigenous people. So I just, I think that's so amazing. And yeah, and I, I don't know, I don't regret it in any ways. I, I, I've had a, I've been lucky to have a stable academic career, which I think is something that few people can say in this age of precarity and neoliberalism. But I do think that there is, you know, it's a trade-off. Um, mm-hmm. and, uh, and, and I have great respect for people who follow other paths.
0: Yeah. Wonderful. Oh, I, I have so many more questions, but I think I don't want to diverge too much from the, from the, from the conference. And I wanted to ask you, I, I think you've already mentioned many, many, many wonderful reasons why somebody would join this, this space, uh, come to the conference, but I wonder if there's anything else that you would like to say to those considering attending, um, that you haven't already mentioned.
1: I mean, I guess I would just or I would really reiterate uh, what, what I've said already and maybe just highlight a couple of points that I think it's um, I think one of the the great tragedies of our current moment is that I'm convinced that future generations will look back. On these, on this time, and and see it as a time of great of great squandering of opportunity that we never had more capacity to to talk, to connect, that we never had more access to resources or technol or technical knowledge um, to address our problems and to uh, and and more than that, really, to build the kind of world that we want. To quote the Zapatistas again, a world capable of holding many worlds, um, and that instead we we wasted it and. Uh, We wasted it in so many ways, but one of the ways that it's really wasted is by the traditional kind of academic approach that Mm -hmm. sequesters and instrumentalizes and, uh, you know, sort of like distills into credentialing um, this process of knowledge making, which really should be grassroots uh Democratic, conversational and wide-ranging and I really I give the organizers of the conference a lot of credit. I think uh, the structure of the conference itself really lends itself to that. I think the the ethic behind it uh, speaks to that and I think even my experience with it last year when it was online only was, I mean, it was an amazing testament. We started off our conversation today talking about some of the uh, the struggles and limits around, you know, trying to have honest mm-hmm. conversations uh, using the media. But uh, it was, I, mean, I still think about that conference a year later now, uh, because I enjoyed it so much. And I can say that so rarely about <laughs> um, academic conferences. So uh, I think, you know, for people who are, we're living through a, an historic moment, obviously, where so many people are considering what, you know, what a return to normal or COVID normal is going to look like when our, the rhythms of our lives have been thrown aside, at least temporarily, uh, perhaps permanently by this pandemic. And, um, and that's, that's scary and it's it's you know it's frightening and there's been a tremendous human cost in all of that. But I also think moments like this are you know are moments of great revealing too, where if we can take time in the midst of this darkness and suffering to talk about uh, what might come out of it, what might what exciting opportunities might emerge, how we can actually mobilize our collective capacity, To actually move towards collective liberation, then then these moments can be so exciting too. And it really is, you know, it's this kind of constant question that, as a scholar and and student of social movements, I'll I'll bring it back to, you know, this question that social movement scholarship seeks to ask and so poorly answers, uh, which is why do movements emerge when they do? And what makes for a successful social movement? Like, what is that alchemy? Um I would say we're really in the midst of one of those alchemical moments where you have this great variety of factors brought together and um it's in moments of exception where the where the, the normal has been suspended where you get these opportunities for people to imagine and practice life as it might be otherwise. And I think this conference is a, a modest contribution to that, too, or or it can be if people show up with that ethic in mind. And I think it's just so exciting to have conversations with people who are not simply wedded only to the academy, to, uh-huh. to the university. And, uh, I love
0: it, Alex. Sorry, I'm interrupting oh no, you. It,
1: that, that really is. That, that was the last thing I wanted to say. I just think it's like it's, it's what we should be doing all the time.
0: Yeah, I, I think I um, thank you so much for what you're saying and your contribution. Um, I, I find it also that I'm double lucky. one want to cover you for the conference and two, to get inspiration with my own work. Uh, Because it feels like a lot of the stories that you're telling really resonate to my current struggles as an activist anthropologist trying to disrupt the academic world. Mm -hmm. Um, So um, and at times it feels infuriating and at times it feels impossible. And at times it feels like there's just no other way I can be an anthropologist. Mm -hmm. That's the only way I can still like my discipline. Right. (laughs) (laughs) Very well, very well. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> <laughs> so uh, but it's a struggle and meeting people like you is a gift along this path so thank you for your words
1: Oh, well, thank you well thank you and, and likewise it's been a lovely conversation thank you so much for the invitation
0: thank you for listening everyone follow us on our social media channels and look at the show notes for links to our speakers work join us next time for more interesting conversations